0: Hello and welcome, my name is Nicholas Ward and this is Historical Hysteria. Alexander Hamilton is, I think we can all agree, awesome. An American founding father, lost to obscurity, brought back with a bang thanks to Lin-Manuel Miranda's incredible musical. And with his musical we get to witness the birth of a whole raft of myths. It should surprise no one, musicals take some liberties with reality. They are entertainment, not documentaries, but thanks to the Hamilton musical and America's die-hard devotion to its founders, there are some truly bizarre myths around Alexander Hamilton. So today we are going to do a quick run through through the five most egregious Hamilton myths, starting with number five, Hamilton the abolitionist. One of the most amazing things about Hamilton was his passionate attacks on slavery, one of the most Prominent anti-slavery voices in the United States of America. Leading a bunch of manumission abolitionists through the war and after. Hang on, what's a manumissionist? Well, manumission was an idea that slavery was bad and should end through manumission. The voluntary freeing of slaves by their masters. Hamilton never supported legal abolition of slavery, and as a founding member of the New York Manumission Society, drew up their bylaws for how members should treat their slaves. Which was lucky and brings us to number four, because Hamilton was a slave trader. After his death, Hamilton's grandson wrote, It has been stated that Hamilton never owned a Negro slave, but this is untrue. In fact, not only did Hamilton own at least two slaves, but he regularly traded in them as well. Hamilton apologists usually point out Hamilton's two slaves were his wife's, gifted to her by her slaver father, Philip Schuyler. They generally leave out the part where Hamilton's papers include numerous transactions buying and selling slaves. This was largely to help his father-in-law with his business, and apologists point out that it was difficult to distance one from slavery at the time. Which doesn't really explain why during the War of Independence Hamilton was personally helping organize the tracking down and capture of runaway slaves. You know, for someone known as an anti-slavery advocate, he didn't really seem to put much effort into, you know, helping slaves. But As they say, it doesn't matter what you do, it only matters what people think you do. Which brings us to number three, Hamilton the tactical genius and war hero. If there's one thing Hamilton can claim with pride, it is that he was a genuine hero of the revolution. He went from student to captain to a major general. And as George Washington's right-hand man, he was an indispensable secretary. It is lost to history how Hamilton convinced Washington to make him an aide-de-camp, but as an aide, Hamilton was essentially a military secretary. He also wasn't alone, Aaron Burr would become an aide-de-camp to Washington as well. To be fair, aide-de-camp positions were highly prized and they would often go and aides would often go on to have very senior commands. And he was by all accounts extremely good at it and rose to be Washington's chief of staff. But it was still an administrative position. And as the song goes, Hamilton still wanted to fight not right. Well, maybe. History kind of backs that up. Hamilton was constantly telling people how he wanted to fight not right. But if he had really wanted to fight, he could have just resigned and joined a unit and then earned his way up into an officer's position. But maybe that didn't occur to him to do. I mean, it's not like a a close associate of his did exactly that, and what's that? Fellow aide-de-camp Aaron Burr did exactly that, and then spent the eight years of the war mostly on the front. Hmm. Weird. Weird that Hamilton was so desperate to get in the fight and yet never, you know tried to get in the fight. Nevertheless, by the end of the war, after a brief falling out with Washington, George got his right-hand man back and Hamilton led a decisive unit in the Battle of Yorktown alongside his good friend Lafayette, who trusted Hamilton so much he tried to replace him in command. Hamilton only got to participate in the battle by going to Washington to complain, this is true, that it was his turn. But it's kind of weird Hamilton got to participate in the battle at all, because by Continental Army standards at this point, Hamilton had zero experience in command. His experience by this point was leading 60-man militias as an elected captain, and participating in a few very small-scale battles. He then served in an administrative role for four years before being relieved after a minor attack, with Washington who punished him by sending him home to be with his wife for three months before bringing him back and giving him control of three battalions in the final battle of the war. So Washington, who by all accounts was friends with Hamilton, sent him home to be with his wife, then out of nowhere at the last stage of the war handed him a senior command, which he had no experience in, meaning Hamilton got to retire on a colonel's pension and social status. I think there's a word for that. What is it? I think it begins with a C. After the war, Hamilton would be promoted to Major General in 1798 at George Washington's insistence during the Quasi-War with France, a move which baffled literally everyone. Because Hamilton had never commanded an army in his life, while actual General Henry Knox was passed over for the position. Washington also made a point to reject an application by Aaron Burr for a position as Brigadier General. Except unlike Hamilton, Burr had commanded an army, though only as a lieutenant colonel he had effectively operated as a colonel over over 1778 and 1779, so he should have been the perfect candidate for promotion to brigadier general. He had also fought in Lower Canada, where the war was going to probably take place, and had real experience both in winning and losing successfully, otherwise known as being overqualified for this kind of war. And yet, not only that, but Burr was a genuine war hero. He had started the war in the devastating expedition to Quebec, was promoted, not elected, to a captaincy, won praise for his bravery, he earned and then gave up a position as Washington's aide-de-camp, saved an entire brigade during the retreat from Manhattan when Hamilton famously captured one cannon, and then he effectively operated as a colonel for nearly two years when he resigned in 1779. He was so highly regarded he was called on as a private citizen to take charge of driving back a British attack in Connecticut. The decision to promote Hamilton and pass over people like Burr and Henry Knox was so controversial Washington felt the need to publicly address it in writing, saying quote, by all that I have known and heard Colonel Burr is a brave and able officer, but the question is whether he has not equal talent at intrigue A response so bizarre that Thomas Jefferson, Aaron Burr's lifelong political enemy, basically responded by saying, Yo, what? Or, more accurately, a long formal letter saying that this decision made absolutely no sense. But anyway, let's move on and head to number two, Philip Hamilton, the poor murdered child. On November 24th, 1801, 19-year-old Philip Hamilton, son of Alexander Hamilton, was shot dead in a duel with one George Eker. According to the now popular story of Hamilton, Eker was an evil, callous man, who dismissively provoked Philip into a duel, and shot him before the count of ten. What a dastardly villain. It is fortunate that you cannot slander the dead, because it is a very weird take on the events to say the least. Now, the challenge was issued after a confrontation at a theatre between Ica, Philip Hamilton, and Philip Hamilton's friend Stephen Price. According to a friend of Ica's, the young Philip and his friend Price had been engaged in an exaggerated display in a neighbouring box, making loud insulting comments about Ica. And when he didn't rise to it, they entered his box and began insulting him to his face. Philip had apparently taken offence to an unfavourable speech about his father four months prior. Ika, according to his second, tried to get them to go to his house after the play if they wanted to argue with him. But when they refused and continued insulting him, he called them damned rascals. The pair demanded to know who he was calling a rascal, to which he replied, both of them. Shock and horror. Philip and Price, who totally weren't trying to provoke a fight, challenged him to a duel. And two days later, the story goes, Ika cheated firing before the count of ten. He shot and killed the young Philip after Philip had heroically tried to throw away his shot." Now, the primary sources here are questionable, because dueling was illegal so much of the story comes from witnesses and associates many years later, but uh, a couple things. Iker certainly didn't cheat, and there is zero evidence that Philip Hamilton tried to throw away his shot. Unsurprisingly, Friends of Hamilton frame Ika as a brute, while Friends of Ika say things went a little differently. So how do we figure out who was right? To be fair to Hamilton and Price, the word rascal had heavy implications in duelling culture at the time, and the insult was much worse than we would consider it today. Insults such as coward, liar or rascals were often the first step towards a formal challenge to a duel, though to be fair to Ika, there is no record of his speech and his brother claimed didn't even mention Hamilton. Ika, however, was a close ally of Aaron Burr. Iker was challenged by Philip and Price, though our only accounts of the exchange are from the seconds. As for the duel, Iker certainly didn't cheat. The witnesses to the duel agreed that the pair stood motionless for over a minute with their pistols pointed downwards, before both raised their pistols and both fired their pistols. We know Iker hit Philip Hamilton, and that... Philip Hamilton missed. The only evidence we have for Philip aiming for the sky is that friends of Alexander Hamilton claiming is that friends of Alexander Hamilton claimed the senior Hamilton advised Philip to throw away his shot. We have no idea if this is true, or if Philip tried to throw his away, or if Philip tried to throw away his shot at all. Philip however did fire his gun. So I'd say he probably didn't try to throw away his shot. One particularly egregious apologist website claims Hamilton probably fired accidentally from a muscle spasm, which they present no evidence for. If we're just making stuff up, well let's say Ica fired accidentally because he was startled by Philip Hamilton's gunshot. That is equally as plausible. That is all we really know about the Ica hamilton duel, but there was another jewel which can help us shed some light on the situation. The Ica price duel, which had occurred the day before. Because we know Iker didn't kill Stephen Price the day before, though the two exchanged four volleys. Not common, but not an unusual turn of events. Dueling pistols are often said to have been extremely inaccurate, though this is true, it is sometimes overstated. At 10 metres, the approximate distance of a duel, a dueling pistol was more than accurate enough to hit a person, though you might not be be hitting bullseyes. So why did Ica and Price exchange so many volleys fruitlessly? Well, duelling was more symbolic than deadly. In fact, between 1795 and 1804, the majority of recorded duels around New York at that time involved no deaths, and most didn't even involve an exchange of fire. But jewels had important political ramifications at the time, and backing out could get you labelled as a coward. In fact, in many ways, duels were used often to discredit political opponents. This could explain the multiple volleys between Iker and Price, both deliberately missing to try and shame the other. Or maybe they were both just really terrible shots, but both of those answers mean that the story of Iker coldly gunning Hamilton down seems unlikely. But anyway, let's move on to number one, the Hamilton Burr Jewel. On the morning of July 11th, 1804, Vice President Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton rode across the Hudson to New Jersey to duel. Aaron Burr shot Hamilton, who died later at home the next day. Now the play Hamilton, which many of these myths are born from, makes four points about the duel. Burr was a terrible shot, Hamilton was wearing his glasses, Burr was scared and shot Hamilton because of it, and finally that Hamilton aimed for the sky. Those last two points weren't invented by Lin-Manuel Miranda, they actually date back to the time of the duel. So, how true are these four points? Well, for starters, Burr was probably a good shot. A courier soldier who'd fought on the front lines and in duels, there is no real evidence he was a bad shot. According to the legends of Hamilton, Hamilton, tired of death, tried to fire for the sky, and Burr, scared, shot him, and then was filled with remorse. Like the Ika Jewel, the primary, source around, the primary sources around this are fraught, and the idea of Burr being filled with remorse is actually a modern part of the story, because the traditional part of the story sometimes presented Burr as remorseful and sometimes presented him as a cold killer. So, what do we know about this? Well, Hamilton did fire his pistol. Both seconds acknowledged this. Judge Nathaniel Pendleton, Hamilton's second, returned to the ground afterwards and found Hamilton's bullet lodged in a tree about four feet wide of where Burr had stood. Burr's shot struck Hamilton, we obviously know that. Now, Pendleton and subsequent stories have presented this as Burr coldly gunning down Hamilton while Hamilton aimed for the sky, his gun going off during his death throes. Now that is possible, it's possible he aimed for the sky. It's also possible he was shooting straight at Burr, and was just a fraction late, and just missed. Because he'd just been shot. A four-foot width isn't really conclusive. And that's only what Hamilton's friend said After the duel. Years later, it was said Burr had expressed regret he didn't kill Hamilton in a way to minimise his suffering. And a British philosopher would later recount Burr told him that he was sure he could kill Hamilton. But all this tells us is that Burr meant to shoot Hamilton. Something we pretty much already knew. But it doesn't tell us anything about whether Hamilton was trying to kill Burr. And yet, everywhere from history books to artworks to musicals, Hamilton is presented as the brave soul shooting for the sky. But where does that story come from? Well, in 1804, after the duel, Burr found himself in an unwinnable position, in no small part because of Hamilton. After Hamilton's death, Burr's own party disavowed him, publicly because of the duel, but in reality, Thomas Jefferson saw Burr as a rival. And Hamilton's Federalists also demonized Burr. And so, when the popular history books started to get written, there were no major political players who wanted to defend Burr. And so, The story was told both by the democratic republicans and their federalist adversaries that Burr had coldly gunned down the hero Hamilton, destroying Burr's career and turning Hamilton into a martyr, and allowed the young nation to deify Hamilton, who when he was alive was controversial to say the least. That is all we have time for today. Thank you for joining me. Feedback can be sent to historicalhysteria at gmail.com and don't forget to check the socials r slash historicalhysteria on Reddit and at Manic History on Twitter. The key sources for this episode were... History of the County of Hudson, New Jersey, by Charles Winfield, published 1874, accessed through Google Scholar. Jeweling as Politics: Reinterpreting the Hamilton Burr Jewel, published by Joanne Freeman, 1994, accessed through JSTOR. And finally, the French 1777 Flintlock Pistol in Action, a YouTube video by user Cap and Ball, published 2016. But before I leave, let me leave you with this. Bad history, as is as old as history. So my bad history take of the week goes to YouTuber Skalgrim, whose take on dueling is bad. According to Skalgrim, a duelist's second had the right to check the opponent's pistol, but they rarely did because they were men of honor. Every primary source on jewels I read, every single one, mentioned the seconds checking the guns. But hey, maybe he just missed that, or maybe he didn't bother checking any sources. We'll never know. Honor is one of those things that people pretty much forget as soon as life or death is at stake. Anyway, well done, Skalgrim. You played yourself, and he has one million subscribers. <sighs> Next week on Historical Hysteria, how the Vikings were totes and maze balls or something stupid and myth-based. Ah, oh, god damn it! Anyway, bye.